own volition, we have no right to come before you. If it weren't for your wonderful, glorious Son who gave his life that we might have eternal life and that we may have the ability to approach you, Lord, as you see us through the blood of Jesus. Oh, Lord, we could never have conceived of a plan like that, but only a great, 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 great God like you could have conceived and pulled off a plan like that. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I've been sharing a series of sermons this month entitled Tactics of the Enemy. And the enemy is the devil, and we've been looking this month at the strategies that the devil uses to try to destroy us. Uh, the devil's against God. He's against God's creation. That's you. And he wants to destroy you. And um, we don't want that to happen. And we have learned some counter strategies that we can live victorious, glorious, joyful lives. I've shared with you so far that the uh, devil is trying to work on your mind he wants to confuse you, he wants to blind you to the truth of the gospel, he wants to mix you up about spiritual truth. We've looked at how the devil works with your passions, your heart. He wants to get you out of control and take God-given passions to the extreme so that you lose control and he can destroy you. And today we want to look at the final strategy of the devil in this series. There are certainly probably others, but we've looked at these main ones. And the one today is that the devil wants to destroy your relationships. So we're going to talk about relationships today and how the devil, his desire is to destroy relationships. He wants to destroy families. He wants to destroy your marriage if you're married. He's working to break it down. He wants to destroy parent-child relationships. He doesn't want you to get along with your parents, guys. He doesn't want you to get along with your children. He wants to sever ties between families, siblings. So you and your brother or you and your sister-in-law. He wants there to be division and strife and discord there. He wants to ruin friendships. He wants to separate neighbors. And above all, the devil wants to destroy Christian relationships. So he likes to divide churches. He wants to get you just a little bit miffed at somebody in your connection group so that you won't go back there. And he will inflate the smallest slight or just some word that somebody has said to you, and you'll blow it all out of proportion in your mind, and you'll dwell on it and roll it over and get madder and madder about it, and the devil is working his will in your life. He wants you to not like something about church so that you'll put some distance between you and your congregation of brothers and sisters. That's the work of the devil. He wants you to, to quarrel and to fight. And then when you quarrel and fight, he wants you not to forgive, to hold a grudge, to get bitter, to think about that injury that you have suffered and dwell on it and let it get down in your heart and make you bitter. <clears throat> and then he wants to 
for you to hold that grudge and never let it go. Well, we don't want that to happen. We want to thwart the enemy. And so we need to recognize that. And so today, we're going to look at uh, his strategy so that we can overcome that. Now, the, the key verse that we've been sharing throughout this series is 2 Corinthians 2.11. Sort of been the theme verse for this series, that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We've looked at that almost every week. Well, today, we're going to look at the passage before that. What led to that verse? We're going to look at the context of that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to see it deals with relationships, a controversy in the church at Corinth. Before we look at this passage, let me set up for you the background of Paul who wrote this letter and his relationship to these Corinthians. So Paul founded the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey. And then he wrote a letter to them, which we call 1 Corinthians in our Bible, to address some problems. And one of those problems were there were some divisions and some fighting in the church. And then after he had written 1 Corinthians, Paul learned that the problem had gotten worse at Corinth. That a false leader, maybe a pastor who had come in or a teacher in the church, had sort of taken control of the church and was teaching some false doctrine. And so Paul made a quick visit. We reconstruct all of this that I'm telling you from 2 Corinthians. I'm putting it together for you. Paul made a quick visit from Ephesus to to Corinth to try to solve this problem. Well, he was rebuffed by this false leader. He apparently was not even allowed to address the congregation he had founded. And he had to leave quickly in some degree of shame. Paul got back to Ephesus and he wrote what is called in this letter a stern letter to them. We don't have this letter. It comes in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. But he wrote to them his heart and he rebuked them and and called them to repent and to discipline this false leader. Well, the majority of the church responded. They realized their error and they disciplined this false leader, maybe excommunicating him, maybe shunning him in the church. We don't know what their discipline was. And, but the false leader, after that, repented. Amazingly, he, he came to express his grief for his sin and repented. And now Paul is writing 2 Corinthians with that background to address that situation. So let's begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So he's referring to that stern letter that we don't have that had done the trick, that had brought the church to repentance. And he's saying, I I know I was stern with you. I I wrote you out of great many tears. I didn't want there to be a quarrel here, uh, but I had to do that. Then, in verse 5, he turns to talk about this person, this false teacher or this leader who had usurped the church, who has now repented. Verse 5, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. Paul says, I'm not taking this personally. What I'm concerned about is he's hurt the church. He says in verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, verse 7, instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he'll not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Isn't that amazing? You know, when somebody has wronged you, 
don't you want to just sort of grind it in just a little bit, you know? You, you just really want to let them have it. Paul's saying, hey, you've disciplined this guy. He's repented. Now ease up. Now you need to receive him back into the fellowship, Paul is saying. And he's saying, For, forgive him and comfort him. And then verse 8, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason, verse 9, I wrote to you to see if you'd stand the test and be obedient in everything. Paul is saying, I wrote that stern letter to you, and you were obedient to my call for discipline. Now I'm writing a letter to you calling for forgiveness. Be obedient to this letter as well, he's saying. And so verse 10, anyone you forgive... I also forgive, and what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Here's our verse in verse 11. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So you see how that ties together there? What Paul is talking about in that verse is that it's one of Satan's schemes to get an advantage over us by dividing us. And Paul says, I don't want that to happen. So I want you to not let this continue. You forgive, you love, you reconcile so that Satan might not outwit us. That's a word for us today. So from this, I want to list, I'm going to go through this again, but I'm going to list four counter strategies that we need to put into place in our lives so that Satan will not outwit us in our relationships. Um, and I want you to know as I, I share these with you that these are tough for me. I, I struggle for, with every one of these. And I'm, I'm sure you're going to struggle in some relationships you have. Some of you have been hurt deeply. You've got some hurt in your past. You have somebody who's abused you. You, you have a, a, an ex-spouse that, that you're not on good terms with. So this is not easy. I recognize that. It's not easy for me. But folks, this is what Christ has called us to, and this is the counter strategy we must put into place or Satan's going to destroy our relationships, our health, and utterly our souls. So, here we go. First counter strategy, and it sort of predates this a little bit. We're sort of backing up a little bit here. The first counter strategy is to avoid foolish quarrels. Before we talk about how to deal with controversy like this one in 2 Corinthians, the first strategy is, Avoid foolish quarrels. Let me show you in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 through 26, what Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. That's pretty direct, isn't it? Because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. There's our enemy again. You see it? The trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So you see, that's part of the devil's strategy to get you quarreling. So the first thing he said is just avoid foolish quarrels. There's a lot of quarrels that you can just stay out of. When uh, my sons were little, we used to wrestle, or as we would call it, we used to wrestle. And when I had it, my sons are four years apart, so my older son, you know, when he was uh, maybe six or seven, he and I would wrestle, and then we had a dog, and he'd come jump in there, and you know, it's just flying everywhere. And 
So the other, my younger son then was two or three, and what he would do is just run and jump on top of the pile. And my wife would say, don't hurt the little one. And I would say, don't hurt the little one. He's just jumping on the pile here. He's jumping into a fight that's not his own. Do you ever do that? Paul's saying, don't do that. You don't have to jump on every dog pile. You don't have to jump into every fight, right? On Facebook, you don't have to jump into every fight. Parents, when your kids quarrel, you don't have to jump in there. They're going to get over it. If you jump in there, you won't get over it. Just avoid some foolish arguments that lead to You don't have to get into every controversy. So the first strategy to keep the devil from gaining an advantage here is every fight is not your fight, and you don't have to get in every fight. And I, that's hard for me to learn sometimes. You've got an opinion, you know, you want to, but you can avoid some of those foolish quarrels. Now, that's the first strategy, but you can't avoid all controversy. Here's Paul, who's following God's will, and he's right in the middle of a, of a nasty controversy with these Corinthians. So there are some things that we have to take a stand. We watched the movie last Sunday night, God's Not Dead, and we saw that, that there was controversy came to a Christian who was taking a stand. So you can't avoid every controversy. But when we're in controversy, here's the second counter strategy, and that is forgive those who wrong you. What we saw in this passage is that Paul is calling to these Corinthians to forgive this person who has wronged them. Now, I think biblical forgiveness is much misunderstood. Biblical forgiveness is, first of all, a matter of faith, not a matter of feeling. You see, some of us, what we do is we don't forgive because we, we still feel hurt. And you can't wait until you quit feeling hurt to forgive somebody. If so, you're letting your feelings trump your faith. But what this forgiveness must first of all be a decision, then it can become an emotion. We get that backwards. I'm not going to forgive because I'm still hurt. I'm still mad. I still have an offense. Forgiveness is first of all decision. So what you need to do, if there's a, a raw relationship, there's a broken in your family, at your workplace... In, in your friendships, you need to forgive a person who's wronged you. You decide to make that, for, uh, even when you don't feel good toward that person. Forgiveness is not feeling good toward that person. It is deciding by faith. The Christian life is all by faith, not feelings. And I decide that I will forgive, and my feelings may eventually catch up with my faith. The best illustrations, I've told it before, best stories I know that helped me to sort of get this was Corey Tinboom who was in a German prison camp in World War II and had a hard time after World War II forgiving her captors, her tormentors, the prison guards. And she talked to a pastor, and the pastor said to her, and this is what helped her and has helped me, you know, in churches they used to have bells in the steeple, and they would have a rope coming down, and you'd pull the bell, pull the rope, and the, it would swing the bell back and forth, and it would ring the church bell. And what Corey Ten Boone said that this pastor told her, he said, the way you forgive, you quit pulling on the rope. The bell will still ring after you quit pulling the rope, but it will eventually slow down and come to a stop if you quit pulling the rope. Forgiveness is like that. It is a decision, I'm going to quit pulling the rope. 
I'm going to quit digging this up, quit going over and over it in my mind, quit feel, having those feelings. I'm going to quit that action. You're still going to feel that for a long time. But if you'll quit pulling on the rope, eventually your feelings will catch up with your decision. And that's what biblical forgiveness is about. It's not saying it is that I still have this hurt, but I'm going to choose not to hold that grudge because it's only destroying me. It's not destroying that other person. I'm not going to let bitterness overwhelm me. Now, I believe that biblical forgiveness is unilateral. That is, you only takes one person to forgive. We're going to see in a moment it takes two to reconcile. Reconciliation is bilateral, but forgiveness is unilateral. That is, you extend forgiveness. Jesus when he was being crucified, prayed, Father, forgive them. Now, it was going to be whether they received that forgiveness or not, but he was extending it to them. And so what we are called to do as Christians is to be just like Jesus, who unilaterally extended forgiveness. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't wait until we were receptive when he extended forgiveness to us? Jesus took the initiative. He unilaterally extended forgiveness. And so that's how we're supposed to act in our lives as well to extend that forgiveness. So God's calling upon you to extend forgiveness to somebody who's wronged you. Doesn't mean that you approve of what they did. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean it wasn't right. It means I'm letting go of this grudge and this bitterness. I'm not going to let it consume me because Jesus has forgiven me. The third counter strategy is to love your enemies. Paul said in this chapter, I want you to reaffirm your love for him. The third strategy is to love your enemies. Now, loving your enemies is the same way. It it is not primarily a feeling. It's an action. It's what Jesus has done for God so loved the world. Jesus loves us, right? How do we know that? Because he came to earth and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. He demonstrated that love. So when we're saying to love your enemies, so this is somebody, this is your ex-spouse, this is somebody who's hurt you deeply in the past, this is somebody at school who's been a bully, This is somebody at work who has lied about you and gained advantage over you. You love your enemies. It doesn't necessarily mean it begins with a feeling. It means, as Jesus did, it's an action. So you do something good for those who are your enemies. One of the greatest stories I remember about this in recent history was a terrible tragedy about 10 years ago where a man went into an Amish school near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he killed four children and injured seven others. The story was that this 32-year-old man was nursing a grudge from 20 years ago, something about a girl, and he separated the girls and the boys, and he shot the girls and not the boys. That's the power of Satan to destroy through a grudge that's held, right? And he killed four little innocent children. And they had nothing to do with it. It was just a target of convenience that he could take his grudge out on. But the amazing story was that those Amish people almost immediately expressed forgiveness for him. Now, does that mean they didn't feel hurt? Certainly they felt hurt. It's not a matter of feeling, it's a decision. But then, at his funeral, just a few miles away, they buried him behind a little Methodist church, and his his, his wife's family had a burial plot, and half of the 75 people who came to his funeral were the Amish people who had been the victim's of this attack. They went to his funeral. 
when almost nobody else did. Why did they do that? Why would you do that? Is it not because their Savior, our Savior, taught us to love your enemies? And I'm sure when they were standing there, they didn't feel warm toward him. I'm sure they were still so deeply crushed and hurt, but they moved their feet and went and stood there at that graveside with his wife as an expression of incredible, unhuman, godly love for enemies. What an example. That's what what Paul is doing. It would have been so easy for Paul to say, yeah, let's show this guy. He's tried to take over the church that I bled and died for. We'll show him. Paul says he's repented. Let's restore your love for him. Incredible example. The fourth counter strategy to thwart Satan is to be reconciled when possible. Notice I put when possible because you can forgive. That's unilateral. That's within your control. Reconciliation is bilateral. It takes two people. And so you need to forgive even though, even when you're not going to be reconciled. You see, I used to tell people in counseling, and you don't see it as much anymore, but do you remember hotel rooms? I stayed in one not too long ago, still had this, where you had adjoining rooms and there are two doors. And so in those adjoining rooms were two doors. You've got a doorknob on the handle of the, your door. There's one doorknob on their handle. For you to have communication, both of you have to open your door. As a kid, we'd stay in there, I'd open that door, and look, and my mother'd say, shut that door, they might open theirs, you know. So if you open your door and they don't open theirs, there's no reconciliation. Or if they open their door and you don't open yours, there's no reconciliation. Paul called them here because there had been this to be reconciled, bring him back into the church. That's not always possible. You see, there may be times when you forgive and you choose not to reconcile. Maybe your boyfriend beat you and you are called to forgive him. It does not have to mean, mean that he has to be your boyfriend again. You don't have to open your door, even if he wants to. There are times when uh, you may open your door and that other person does not. Maybe you're, you're married and, and uh, you want to be reconciled to your spouse and there's been a, a difference there. And you've got your door open, but they don't have theirs open. You can't control that other person in a friendship, in any other relationship. But when possible... The Bible calls us to not only forgive, but to really show Satan to be reconciled. And so whenever impossible in your life, restore that relationship. When you can do that, and when that other person is willing to do that. Now, would you apply this? I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I know in every one of us, there's some conflict. The devil just works in our work, in our homes, in our friendships, in our extended families. And some of you have got siblings. I know there are people in our church who have siblings, adult siblings, and you haven't talked to in a long time. You need to forgive them. That's unilateral. You may not can be reconciled. They may not want to open their door, and you don't have guilt for that. But you're going to, you can forgive them, and you can show love. You may have an ex-spouse. And you're not going to be reconciled, but you need to love that enemy. 
And if you're continually stroking that fire and you're getting other people on your side and on social media, you're airing your differences and you're doing every way you can to put them down and to make them look bad, you're not obeying the commands of Christ toward your enemy. You may never be reconciled, but you need to unilaterally forgive to change a decision. You're still going to have that hurt, I know. And you need to love your enemies. That is, do good to, and doing good at first means don't do any harm. Don't do any harm is the first part of doing good. It may be it's somebody at work that God's speaking to you about in these relationships. And they have not treated you well at work. And now the challenge is, am I going to treat fight fire with fire? Or am I going to be like Christ... And even though it's hard for me to do, in some way I'm going to try to love that enemy in action. Is God speaking to you? There's a devil. He wants to destroy us. But there is a God who's greater than the devil, who has shown to us agape love, who has shown to us extended forgiveness when we had never even thought of him, And today you can receive the love and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ no matter what you've done. And then he calls you to live like him. And nothing will mess with the enemy more than when you love your enemy or forgive somebody who's hurt you. Oh, that'll just throw him completely off course. And that's what God has called us to do. Let's pray together. Would you join me? Oh, Lord God, this is is tough. It's tough for me. It's easy to think bad thoughts about somebody who's hurt you, sort of be secretly glad when they suffer misfortune. Easy to inflate little bitty things into big things. Oh God, help us to see with with clear vision today the, uh, the strategy of the enemy. And Lord, some of us are thinking about some relationships right now, and we're wrestling with applying this. And oh Lord, we can't do it without your power. So may the love of Jesus flow over us. May the sense of how forgiven we are just overwhelm us, that it may motivate and equip us to act in the same way toward others. Oh God, we're going to need your help. May the power of the Spirit help us to do what we don't think we can do, that the enemy may be thwarted, and you may be glorified, and our lives may be better. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before you can give, you have to receive. You can't give away anything that you don't have. And you can receive today the forgiveness of all of your sins and receive the love of a God who loved you before you ever knew him, wants you into a relationship with him. You're his enemy, not by his choice, but by yours. You have set yourself against the commands of God. And if you'll repent... You can receive the forgiveness he extended to you a long time ago. You can come into a reconciliation with him that will bless your life and bring glory to him and begin to transform you. Would you stand together with me? And if it's your desire to receive that, I'm going to ask you to walk down one of these aisles and meet me or another pastor here to indicate that. You can be baptized in the name of Jesus. If you want a church home, we invite you to come in the same way. If you want somebody to pray with you about something going on in your life, we invite you to do that. Let's sing together. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness.